have the distinct honor of introducing our next speaker, Diana Pavlak-Glyer. Now, Diana currently resides in Glendora, California, where she spent most of her professional career as a teacher at Azusa Pacific University. She currently teaches in the Honors College and really is widely known on campus as one of the toughest, but also one of the very best teachers that has ever graced the campus of APU. Diane has a BS in Education, a BS in English and Fine Arts from Bowling Green State, an MS in Education from Northern University, and a PhD in English from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Not only is she one of the most brilliant people that other scholars would say that they have met, but she also embodies the heart of a genuine pastor. Her inspiration comes from studying the life of C.S. Lewis, Gerald Tolkien, and the rest of the Inklings. But her passion for Lewis and Tolkien took her down into a path of what really is the theme for our time here in Aruba, collaboration. She also is a published author of multiple books, a well-known speaker, and is an inspiration to artists all over the world. Her life mission of helping others reach their full potential through the power of collaboration is not just something that she teaches about, but it's something that you can see in every area of her life. In addition, Diana holds a special place in my heart because she's my aunt, my favorite aunt. She's also a fellow Nino and has become a really great friend. So would you please put your hands together and welcome with me, my favorite Dr. Auntie, Diana Pavlak-Glyer. Uh, Dr. West set such a good foundation in defining and elaborating the power of collaboration, what I want to do is I want to go a little bit deeper. I want to approach it from a slightly different point of view. So as we look at the, the sort of nuts and bolts, what is it that occurs within the context of a successful collaborative group? And I think that rather than just listing all of those traits, what I really want to do is help you to see, to catch a vision of somebody who is particularly good at this, and that's one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis. But before I talk about C.S. Lewis, I want you to think for a moment, not about the people who perhaps lifted you up, who were the encouragers at times when you were running the marathon of life, but to think about the people whose life served as a kind of role model for you. The kind of people that you have encountered in various realms of your life, that as you looked at their life, you thought, I want more of that. I want to be being more like, like, like that. Whatever they've got, I want some, right? Because they showed you a vibrancy of life. On the notes that you had from the first talk, just flip that on over. Can you picture a person? It might even be a historical character. It might be a theologian. It might be a professor. It might be a family member, an individual, someone who you look at their life and you say, that's a life well lived. That's a life well worth emulating. Can you picture them? Can you picture their voice? Can you picture their face? I've been blessed in my life with so many outstanding teachers, leaders, pastors. And for me, as a person who came to faith in high school, so many of those camp counselors, right, who just poured in and showed me a life so exciting, so fulfilling, and so successful. But when I think about role models for me, I just keep circling back to C.S. Lewis. 
C.S. Lewis lived a life of significance. I want to take some time and explain what was so significant about his life. I want to try to share some specific ways that collaboration changed him and the ways that collaboration and good teamwork, teamwork done well, can transform our lives as well. In the Christian life, it's hard to find an author who's quoted more often than C.S. Lewis, right? And what's interesting about C.S. Lewis is his words, they, trans, uh, they transform across boundaries, across geographic boundaries and across time boundaries. One of the interesting things for me about the, the impact of C.S. Lewis is it continues to grow decades after his death. We're still looking to him, his books, his words, but also the example of his life. C.S. Lewis is one of the most beloved authors. We love his books. Many of us have read the Chronicles of Narnia to our kids and caught in those books a glimpse of the Christian life. Some of us have uh, found these books just to be really helpful in sharpening our understanding of those theological principles that are so important. We have a lot to learn from Lewis, from the things that he wrote, but also from the life that he lived. How can we account for the ways that one man continues to have such impact? I want to suggest a few ways. The first one is his range. So when you look at C.S. Lewis, what you see is a man who has an incredible range of interests. He wrote children's books. He wrote theological books. He wrote apologetics. But he also wrote poetry. He wrote philosophy. He was a man who was curious to learn new things, eager to learn, and even more than that, important for us, someone who was sensitive to the changing needs of the world around him. That range characterized every step of his life. As a C.S. Lewis scholar, one of the questions that I teach my students to ask is not only what did C.S. Lewis say, but when did he say that? Because in different seasons of his life, he discovered new things. He was open to how God might open new doors of ministry for him. And I find that a remarkable example. Lewis's range, one of the things that he did right. A second thing is this spirit of surrender, surrender to Christ. In addition to this openness, this range, his life is marked by the depth of his commitment to Christ. Now, when you talk to people who knew C.S. Lewis personally, and you ask them, what was that like? What was it like to know Lewis personally, to spend time with him? What they will tell you is this was a man who had every aspect of his being completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. He held nothing back. In fact, one of his closest friends called C.S. Lewis the most thoroughly converted man he had ever met. Can you imagine? Someone saying that about our lives? The most thoroughly converted person. Every aspect of our personality, everything that we own, and also everything that we hope, everything that we dream, thoroughly 
surrendered to the lordship of Christ and the things that God wants to do in us and through us. To say yes to a life like that. So C.S. Lewis grew up in a Christian home with a child's faith. But in the course of his life, he encountered tragedy, real difficulty. The pain and the difficulty raised serious doubts for him about the goodness of the universe. He was thrown off by the problem of pain. Particularly, his faith was shattered by the First World War, his experiences there on the front line, and the death of his mother. And as a result, C.S. Lewis became a committed atheist. Now, C.S. Lewis was good at a lot of things, but he was not very good at being an atheist. Let me tell you why. This is what he said about his faith in this period. He said, I do not believe in God, and I am mad at God for not existing. <laughs> uh, here's what changed. As an adult, Lewis found himself meeting sincere Christians whose faith made a difference. And he complained to a friend. He was so annoyed. He said, a young atheist cannot be too careful in the people he encounters <laughs> and the books that he reads. I think about that when I think about the people we encounter here on this happy island. As they look at our lives, even as we interact, as they serve us in so many ways, do they look at us and see an embodied faith? Do they say, as they see us interacting, as they see our kindness and our character, do they say, they've got something. They've got something wonderful. Tell me more about what it is that brings you here to this place. What is it that characterizes you in this way? Lewis uh, came to a point after a long season of struggle in the summer of 1930 where he was forced by friendship and also by the evidence that he saw of the world in which he lived that God was God. And he knelt and he prayed. And he called himself at that time the most reluctant and dejected convert in all of England. Now that's not what we're used to. We're used to the joyful hallelujah. Why did he call himself dejected? Why reluctant? Seems odd, doesn't it? But from the very start, from the time he first began to consider the claims of Christ, he recognized that faith in Christ does not mean you add an hour and a half of church attendance on a Sunday and call it good. He understood that the Christian faith is not a kind of special seasoning that you simply sprinkle over the top of the things you wanted to do anyway. Lewis counted the cost. Was he reluctant? Was he dejected? Yes. Because he realized what it would mean to continually, on an ongoing basis, as a living sacrifice, stay committed to Christ. Right? Living sacrifice. What's the problem with the living sacrifice? It always wants to 
get off that altar, right? He wanted his life as a living sacrifice to stay on that altar. When he prayed it, he meant it. Complete surrender, the most thoroughly converted man. He had counted the cost. Every hope, every dream, every aspiration completely surrendered to the God he loved. What else? What else characterizes this man? There is uh, an unusual combination of two traits that are often at odds with each other in our Christian faith. I've heard so many times people talk in terms of faith, right, or the cultivation of the mind, the understanding. We tend to treat these two traits as if they're enemies. In, in fact, they companion together, right? Lewis's mind, <laughs> his intellect, his schooling, his training at the highest possible level, he was brilliant. He was brilliant, but he cultivated that mind by reading great books, by interacting with others, continual life of learning. But he wasn't, as I like to remind my students, he wasn't just a brain on a stick. He cultivated his heart, his imagination, his curiosity, his tender heart of compassion, and found ways that these two would go literally hand in hand and characterize his um, entire ministry. So we have the imaginative books that we think about. Chronicles of Narnia, The Great Divorce, love that book. But then we have this really hard-headed, deep-thinking stuff, like The Abolition of Man. Have you tried to read that? <sighs> I need to be like at my very, very best, like three cups of espresso. You know what I mean? That's a three cup of espresso kind of book. I love it, but it is, it's, it's, it's slow going. It's slow going. Both and, mind and heart, pastors. When I think about our preaching and our teaching, are we bringing together the creative imagination, vivid imagery, wonderful stories, beautiful examples, along with deep, deep understanding? Are we continually challenging our people to realize things at a deeper level than they ever have before? And I'm, I'm thinking even as we encounter one another in informal settings, do we bring wisdom? Do we leave folks with a sense, oh, that was a wise saying, that was a helpful insight? Are we oriented toward that even in our informal times together? Do we combine clear thinking with a tender heart? So we have range, we have surrender, and we have this wonderful collaboration between mind and heart. But there is another ingredient. There's a fourth component. And this fourth component, I think, most people overlook entirely. And we overlook it because we tend to think of genius as a thing that's very individual, right? He is a genius and therefore he accomplishes all of these things. No, 
No, it will not surprise you to know that there's another component, a missing piece. And in order to get there, I want to tell you a little bit more about C.S. Lewis's life. So that's Jack, as he was known uh, when he was a little boy. Lewis grew up just outside of Belfast in Northern Ireland. His mother died when he was 10 years old. And Lewis spent most of his childhood in various boarding schools. It was not a happy childhood. In his autobiography, he compares these boarding schools to Nazi concentration camps. They were bleak and abusive places. But Lewis's life changed when he went away to college at Oxford University, and then he got a job teaching there. He spent most of his life living and working in Oxford, and he was extremely talented, so it won't surprise you to know that by the age of 19, he had published his first book. Now that book was a, a collection of poetry called Spirits in Bondage. It was uh, loved by the critics. I think it sold four copies. <laughs> Several years later, Lewis wrote his second book, and then that was followed by a series of very, very important academic tomes. All right, stay with me here for just a minute. I love C.S. Lewis, really I do. And I'm not trying to diss the man, okay? But look at those titles. Look at those books. There's philosophy, poetry, textbooks, literary criticism. When you think of C.S. Lewis, are these the titles that first come to mind? Oh. So if the stuff that he wrote under his own impetus were not the books that we think about when we think about C.S. Lewis, what changed? What threw that door open wide? Let me ask that question another way. If Lewis was equipped for success because of his wide range of interests, his decision to surrender daily to the Lordship of Christ, and his ability to nourish both his mind and his heart and the mind and the heart of those he served, what was the fourth thing? What was the overarching thing that transformed C.S. Lewis from an obscure college professor to one of the most important writers of the 20th century? It was friendship. Specifically, it was friendship with this guy. Lewis and Tolkien were both faculty members teaching at Oxford, and they met at a faculty meeting. Now, here's the thing. When the two of them first met, they did not like each other, not even a little bit. In fact, that night, C.S. Lewis wrote in his diary that he thought that Tolkien was not a bad chap, but he needs a good smack. <laughs> now, in academic terms, those are fighting words, I got to say. <laughs> When I think about quotable quotes from C.S. Lewis, you know, the quotable quotes we put in our sermons and we put on our Facebook news feed, he needs a good smack. Is <laughs> not the one that I think of. Is not the one that comes to mind. But, but come to think of it, speaking of Facebook, uh, maybe there are certain folks 
that when we think about them and as we encounter them, it seems maybe not so far-fetched that a good smack might be called for. <laughs> Did you say preach? <laughs> I don't know, every time, every now and then I feel like a good smack simply may be the solution, right? All right, restraint in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Maybe there is a little bit of C.S. Lewis in all of us. I'm going to tell you a story this morning. I want to answer some important questions. Questions that I have and I hope that you have because I think that if we can figure this out, it'll go a long way to energize our ministries. Let me say it again. If we want to learn from C.S. Lewis, we should learn from his example, from his life, and not just the things that he wrote. Tolkien was the missing piece that, that brought out the best in him and provided the energy and vision and practical help that was in so many ways a kind of rocket fuel for the things that God wanted to do through him. And as Dr. West said, it was a kind of expansion of his understanding, a catalyzing of his talents that only happens in the context of collaboration. I want to explain what their secret was and I want to explain a few ways that we can put that into place as well. So first of all, why were these two guys so antagonistic to one another? Why did they have such a bad start together? In brief, it's because they were so very different, right? C.S. Lewis was a rookie. It was his first year on the faculty. He was brand new, first year teacher. Tolkien at that point was already an established and well-respected department chair, right? So there was a difference in their rank and in their experience. But it was more than that. They were very different in their, different in their temperaments. So C.S. Lewis was kind of, a, kind of a loud, big, boisterous person. If C.S. Lewis was in the room, you knew it, right? Uh, on the other hand... Tolkien, quite the opposite, very introverted. Lewis, a blazing extrovert, right? Tolkien, very introverted, spoke very softly. Tolkien's students said it was really hard to hear him because he spoke so softly. So you see these two together, right? You can see how that would be a little bit of a difficulty. And also, at this time, this was when Lewis was busy trying to be an atheist. Tolkien, on the other hand, was a man of deep faith. He was raised a Catholic. He was very devout. And in fact, one of the most important things to remember about this friendship is that Tolkien never ceased to pray on a daily basis for his friend C.S. Lewis, that he would come to faith and that he would grow in faith. And I don't know, when we get to heaven, I got a feeling that we're going to see that so much of what Lewis accomplished was watered by the prayers and tears on a daily basis, faithful prayers by his friend Tolkien. You know, I don't think we can underestimate the power of that kind of prayer. In fact, as the years went by, Tolkien was very instrumental in uh, Lewis's conversion. Uh, that's a long story. That's a story for another day. Perhaps in our breakout groups or maybe over dinner, uh, we can chat about that whole experience a little bit. Uh, but Tolkien was at the center of that experience as well. Here's my point. 
When you think about Lewis and Tolkien, it's really tempting to say, here are two fantasy writers, here are two college professors, here are two guys from Oxford. They seem to have a lot in common, but they were very, very different in so many ways. And because of those differences, they were initially suspicious and then they went straight to dislike. But somehow these two overcame those differences. Uh, more than that, somehow these two stopped thinking of difference as a problem and recognized that difference is a strength, that those varied ways of approaching the same thing, that's how we grow, that's how we learn, that's how we expand in our vision of what's possible. Now their differences were deep-seated in faith, in culture, in taste, in personality, in age, where they were from, even the way they dressed. But here's what I want you to keep in mind. Lewis and Tolkien did not become friends in spite of their differences. They didn't grit their teeth and say, I'm going to like you anyway. Or sometimes as we say to one another, I'm going to love you with the love of Jesus. <laughs> Which is often a cold and not so friendly form of love. <laughs> They didn't just grit their teeth and try to overcome it. They said, hey, you know things I don't. You see the world in ways I do not. You have had experiences I've yet to have. There is so much I have to learn from you. It's that spirit of openness, of curiosity. And that's how they became so productive. Both of them, as Dr. West said, both of them benefiting from that dynamic interaction that took each one into places that neither one could have imagined had he stayed on his own. Can you imagine in your own circle the energy, the versatility, and the breadth that comes when we start looking at people who differ from ourselves as assets and not irritations? Now, I'm talking about that youth pastor, that new guy, who just is so out there. I'm talking about that person. I'm also talking about that congregant who at the mere whiff of change digs in his heels and say, we've never done it that way. I'm talking about that person too. What do they see that we don't? What is clear to them that we don't yet comprehend? And how can we use their unique perspective, first of all, to expand our own world, our own vision, but second of all, to minister to them by trying to seek first to understand where they're coming from. Because those deep-seated convictions come from a place of values that are undergirding it. What are they valuing that perhaps we're overlooking? What's underneath the irritants that's going to bring forth our understanding as a beautiful pearl? I believe the foundation of an effective team is a common passion, a rock-solid conviction about what's important and what is not, and at the same time, the energy and fresh vision that comes because we have different ways of looking at things.
Yeah? So Lewis and Tolkien became friends, and they became, <clears throat> excuse me, Lewis and Tolkien became friends because Tolkien made a very simple decision. He started a book club. Now, starting a book club is not a big deal. In the city of Oxford, book clubs are everywhere. He started a book club. C.S. Lewis came to the book club. And through that book club, these two men, so different in every way imaginable, discovered that underneath the superficial differences, they were really committed to some of the same ideals. They valued many of the same things. And when that book club came to an end, these two men decided, this is so good, what we have in our conversation, in the way that iron is sharpening iron, that we should continue to meet. And they made another very simple decision. Listen, so often the most profound things in our life become, come about because of very small and simple decisions. We make it complicated. They made it simple. They said, let's get together for lunch one day a week and continue our conversations together. One of the secrets of creativity is something that not many of us have in our life. Unstructured time meeting together. So the book club was a start, got them on the same page, helped them to discover some things about each other. But over time, what helped them to go deeper, to discover one another, and to become that dynamic team that was so effective, is they had unstructured time one day a week. Lewis called it his favorite hour of the week, time with Tolkien. They didn't even write a mission statement. <laughs> There was no, like, goal, you know? They didn't have, forgive me, five principles. They just said, let's get together for lunch. Let's talk. Let's learn about one another. Let's begin as we grow in trust, as Dr. West suggested, trust. As we grow in trust, let's get more in, in tune with one another's joys and one another's sorrows, one another's struggles one another's pain. As we spend time together in informal ways, let's let the Holy Spirit lead us into those deeper places of communion with one another as brothers in Christ, and then send us out into a world with work to do that makes a difference. I would love to think that one of the most important decisions that you might make this week is to find a time when your door is open and you invite people to just drop in for a chat, or where you connect with one other person, I love the challenge to go visit another church. Just be in somebody else's space, see how they do what they do. Time to share a meal, share life, celebrate the ways that these might pave the way to friendship, but also to breakthrough. Times for encouragement, for companionship, for innovation and productivity. Lunch, one hour a week at the Eastgate Hotel in Oxford. What difference did it make? I'll show you. These are the books that C.S. Lewis wrote before this group, The Inklings, got started. Tolkien, Lewis, and then the others that gathered around them. 
And these are the books that he wrote after. These are some of the books that he wrote after. There are more than 60 published books that C.S. Lewis produced. The group known as the Inklings, these other individuals, writers who circled around them, who met at the Eagle and Child Pub and at Lewis's rooms in Maudlin College. Together, this group published over 300 works of significance. Iron sharpens iron, right? The dynamic energy that emerges from a group like that. The ways these men learn to lean on one another, help one another. This is even better. Watch this. This is what Tolkien wrote before he met up with the Inklings. Uh, Middle English reader and vocabulary. (laughs) How many of you, as you were packing for Aruba and thinking about the beach, threw a copy of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, annotated edition, into that suitcase? (laughs) This is not what we think of when we think of Tolkien. This is what he wrote in the context of the group and much more. Tolkien was very, very prolific in the writing that he did. All of the books that we think of when we think of Tolkien were written in the context of this dynamic writing group, all of them. Now, I'm fascinated by this group. I've been studying this group my whole life. And when I think about the takeaways of a group like that, I want to ask the question, how did such a small group of people manage to accomplish so much? Your church, your mission group, your friend circle. How does a small group of ordinary believers change the world? How does that happen? In short, I think it's this. They had the courage to connect. That takes time and commitment, doesn't it? To make time for one another, to spend time, to waste time, no, to invest time in one another. They had the courage to connect and they practice a variety of ways of supporting one another. So all this talk of getting together and collaborating, I think maybe by now you've gotten the idea that some of us are kind of excited about the potential that comes from good collaboration. But then the question is, what do we do when we get together? How do we make that work? We can't go back in time and watch them interact at those meetings, but I've read their diaries and I've read their letters and I've read the books that they wrote. I've read their accounts of what happened, and I have found nine factors that characterize the way that Lewis, Tolkien, and the Inklings met together, interacted with one another, and helped one another. We want iron to sharpen iron, but in order for that to happen, we need to know what to do. So you got a little card like this on your seat as you came in. This list suggests some of the ways that successful teams support one another. They are all important. Most of us long to support the others in our life. We do. We just don't know how. We don't know what to do. Or if we're good at one thing, one channel as it were, we don't realize that there's a whole range of ways 
that our human soul needs to be encouraged. I want to talk about a couple of them. And the first one I want to talk about is praise. I think as Christians, sometimes we're a little bit shy about the importance of praise. We're nervous that it's feeding the ego. I want to suggest that praise is very important, if nothing else, to counterbalance the negativity of the culture in which we live. We live in a culture where shame and criticism abound. And so few people ever hear, you did a good job. Oh my goodness. I think praise has a lot to offer. In fact, when I think about the importance of praise, hear this. When I think about the importance of praise, I don't just think about the way that it impacts those we speak to. I think about the way that bounces back and reorients our own souls. Right? That's why C.S. Lewis connects praise with, with inner health. Our health is enhanced <laughs> as we become the kind of people who orient ourselves toward goodness, toward praise. How would your life change if you made it a habit to praise things, to be on the lookout for things to praise? How would your relationships change if more and more you became the kind of person oriented, oriented toward what is good? What would happen even in these few days, my brothers and my sisters, if we were constantly, constantly thinking about what is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if we became the kind of people who were on the lookout for excellence, if Philippians 4.8 was the characteristic that marked everything about every day, could we be thoroughly converted at that kind of a level? When we think about a group like the Inklings sitting down on a, on a Thursday night reading their rough drafts out loud, we take it for granted that they criticize each other, right? We take it for granted that they gave each other advice, right? Those are important modes of collaboration. What I want to do is I want to expand your understanding of all of the different things that are part of collaboration. Praise is an important part of it. Praise means you see good work and you praise the work. Okay? I think there's another component of the way that we can interact that's even bigger than praise, and that's the second one that's encouragement, right? We are hungry for encouragement. Yes. When we go out on a limb, what we need more than anything else is hope, yeah, that's right. right? Praise is oriented toward the work. Encouragement, it is directed toward the soul of the individual. It answers the question, do I have what it takes to do this big thing that God is calling me to? Yeah. Encouragement means to put courage into the hearts of those who hear us. That's right. 
Every time we take a risk, every time we go out on a limb, we need more than anything hope. These are risks, decisions, lectures, sermons, articles, singing a song, stepping up and saying, the Lord told me I was singing with you today. Glory to Jesus, right? Right? Every time we do that, we need someone to say, yes, 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 right? Encouragement is focused on the person. Encouragement says, you, you have what it takes. Encouragement says, I believe in you. I believe in you here today. Encouragement is that voice that says, I have seen you pull this off before. And I have no doubt that you're going to be able to pull this off again. Many of us have been starved. Many of the people around your table right now this minute have been starved all of their lives for that voice that says, I believe in you. You got this. I know what you're made of. I am confident in what God will accomplish through you. The idea of encouragement can be a little slippery. Let me make it even more specific by telling you an example from my own life. When, when I was working on my first book, I spent more than a decade trying to write this thing. And I had more rejection slips than I needed to wallpaper my entire bathroom. <laughs> and after 10 years, writing, submitting, getting rejected. I came to a point where I was, I, I was done. I was, I was spent. I was, I was finished. I said to myself, self, that was a good effort. I'm sure that wasn't, <laughs> do you ever do this? I'm sure that was an educational exercise. <laughs> but this book is never going to get finished. It's never going to get read. And I'm just going to be okay with that. So that week, I went to prayer meeting that weekend, and uh, I saw my friend Joe there. Joe's also an author, dear friend of mine. And I said, Joe, you have been so faithful to pray for this book, and I love you for it, but I, I, I've come to the end. I've come to the end of myself. I'm, I'm done. And I expected Joe to give me some major pushback. You know how our good friends do? No, you got this. You can do this. You know, all that. I expected him to really, you give it one more shot. But I wasn't in a place where I could hear that. Do you know what I mean? I was really done. Like, really had it. And Joe knew this. And so Joe looked at me and he said, you know what? He said, that's okay. That's okay? I said, no, I'm really, I'm seriously abandoning this. <laughs> I said, I have no hope that this project's going anywhere. I'm going to turn my attention, my time, my talents, my energy. I'm going to do something different. And he said, I know. You're discouraged. And I know you don't have hope. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to scoop up and hold that hope for you until you can have hope for yourself. I said, Joe, I can't see it. I can't see it. He said, you don't have to. 
because I see you walking through that living room door with a box of books with your name on it. It will come to pass, and I will believe it until you can see it for yourself. Was I encouraged? Was Joe right? <laughs> oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. But that was a dark night of the soul for me. I didn't believe it. He believed it for me. We can hold hope for one another, my brothers and sisters, for those big dreams that seem so long delayed. Scripture is full of those stories, isn't it, of things that are long delayed. Encouragement answers the question, do I have what it takes? Can I really do this? Encouragement, so big, so important. Encouragement is that quiet voice that says, you are gifted. God is using you. I thank God for you. If words were water, if words were water, encouragement sinks down through the layers of resistance and it waters the deep, deep places of our soul. Praise can go sideways, sink its roots into performance. But encouragement invariably lifts our hearts. As they met every Thursday night, Lewis, Tolkien, and the rest of the Inklings experienced both praise and encouragement. But there are other ways that they supported each other, other important ways. Praise and encouragement have to do with our words, there are other forms of support that have to do with our actions. Let's talk about a couple of them. The third factor I want to introduce you to is this practical help idea. The Inklings offered to one another incredible amounts of practical help, loaning each other's book, uh, books, uh, gathering paper during paper shortages so that everyone would have enough. Those kinds of practical steps that we all need. Listen. I'm sure there's no one in this room who can relate, but I'm a classic overachiever. Uh, <laughs> uh, my whole life I've been trying to be good at everything. I can't do it. I can't do it. Truth be told, there's a whole lot I can't do. So I think about the body of Christ. That awesome passage from 1 Corinthians 12 that reminds us that God, God has called us here together. God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. We need each other, my brothers and my sisters. We need each other. We need the differences that characterize our ministries. We need the differences that characterize our faith journeys. We need the differences that characterize our personalities. Here is my confession. Left to my own devices, I want to be the hands and the feet, the eyes and the ears, and the muscles and the brain. <laughs> and when I try to do that, how complex my life becomes. And how heavy my burden becomes. And how crammed my schedule becomes and how desperately tired I become. What about you? Same? Yep, yep. Your family, your church, your team at work? Same? 
I think about this talk. So over the last few months, these are really good words. Listen to them. I got stuck. I needed help. I got stuck. My printer wasn't working. Adam, my printer is broken again. Could you like do the reconnecting thingy? Because it's not listening to me. I got stuck. I needed help. Right? Hannah, <laughs> the airline has changed my travel time again. I need help. I cannot wait for another six and a half hours on the phone with American Airlines. No. No. Can you help? Right? I got stuck. I needed help. Megan, where are you, Megan? Everybody looks at Megan in the back there and say, thank you, Megan. Thank you, Megan. Megan, I need little cards, but I don't know how to do the type setty, printy color thing. Could, could, could you do that for me? Practical help. As we lift up one another in the practical tasks of our lives, it's amazing. It is amazing what happens when we function as the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. What do you need to do to give and receive practical help in your daily life? The next category I want to mention, the fourth one, is mentoring. Very briefly, mentoring is similar to practical help, but mentoring is through example. By watching what others do and becoming an apprentice to their way of life. In every realm of accomplishment, parenting, for example, we need people who are a little bit further down the road than we are so we know what's coming. We need them to show us how to get through it experience, perspectives, the details of how to persist. We learn this not so much by being taught because these things are caught by spending time together. Is there someone you admire and would like to learn from? How about shadowing them for a day or for a weekend? How about doing a formal interview, you know, with a little recorder on your phone and just ask them questions? How do you do what you do? How about we make time for those kinds of mentoring relationships? Flip it around. Is there somebody in your sphere, in your neighborhood, in your family who's stumbling a little bit, struggling a little bit? Well, take it to prayer. But also, invite them to coffee. Invite them to check in with you 10 minutes a week. Quick exchange. How are you? What's going on? What are you facing? What are your hopes and prayers for the next week? How can I pray for you? We mentor. We come alongside. Now, there are nine different activities that I have identified as characterize small groups that thrive. Teams that find they are more productive and more innovative. I've talked about four of them. I've mentioned praise, encouragement, practical help, and mentoring. I want to talk about just one more. And that one more is resonating. Do you know that word? Resonating? Whether you know the word or not, I can guarantee you this. You need resonators in your life more than you know. What is a resonator? A resonator is someone who has the gift of listening. They are slow to give advice. They withhold criticism. They listen. 
and they feed back to you what you told to them. They resonate. Let me explain it this way. If you're a musician, you know that a piano makes music as a little hammer hits a string. It is the string that makes the music of the piano. But when we listen to someone play the piano, or play a guitar, or play a violin, we're not actually listening to the string at all. Did you know that? We are listening to the body of the instrument. The wood that makes up the piano vibrates at the same frequency as the string. It amplifies the sound. And that's what we, as resonators, can do for one another. Here's what I hear you say. It sounds to me as if. Are you suggesting that this is, do I understand this correctly? We need to get better at resonating. And in order to do that, we need to cultivate three traits. The first one is curiosity. We genuinely have to assume that we don't know everything and we want to learn more. Curiosity. Second one is humility. As we listen to one another, I have to get away from the tendency to assume that your experience in life has been like my experience in life. In humility, I need to lean in and listen and believe you with the things that you're going through. Curiosity, humility, patience. I talked about practical help. It's good, but that, everybody doesn't need you to just jump in and solve the problem. First, they need to be heard and understood. Like the body of the piano, the body of Christ can listen and learn to amplify the beautiful music. Beautiful music hidden in every single heart. It helps in hard times. It really helps when we as a team are trying to accomplish something great. So how are we going to put this into practice? This week, let me encourage you to practice the language of collaboration, to find excuses to expand, to think about what is my first response, what is my natural response, what might I try instead in this situation, and to see if we can become fluent in the language of collaboration. Let me also suggest a couple of key questions that I think in just a few minutes around our table we might start with to practice resonating. We're coming out of a season of COVID restrictions, financial challenges, problems and difficulties like none of us have ever seen before. But here's what's interesting to me. The impact of those factors hasn't been unilateral. It hasn't been the same across the board, has it? Those same challenges have opened for some folks opportunities we would have never seen if it hadn't been for those challenges. So let's not assume, let's ask, what has this past year been like for you? If in our table talk there's a couple, would you be open to the possibility that the experience was very different for each of the members of that couple? 
because we go through hard times differently? Can we cultivate curiosity, humility, and patience as we listen to one another, not only around these tables, but in the other realms where we will encounter each other in these days? But I wonder, too, if you could get to the question, what do you feel like you need most going forward? What is the thing that would make a difference? What would put courage into you? Let's make the most of our time together. My prayer is that as we think about these things, we'll feel more equipped than ever. Here is the bottom line. Here is my sermon in a sentence. C.S. Lewis's secret to success is that he understood that by the grace of God, we really are better together. Thank you.